Happy Easter. I am David Dare, one of the pastors here at Frontline. And in a real way, we celebrate as a church, and not just us as a church, but the global universal church celebrates the resurrection every Sunday. But like Anna and I, my wife, have been married 18 years, and every day of our marriage, in a real way, we want to celebrate the love that we have with one another and the union that is ours. And yet, one day a year on our anniversary, I want to, like, in in an intentional way, in a special way, celebrate our love and our marriage. You could have a friend or a, a child, and you want to love and honor them every day. But on their birthday, in a special way, you want to be really intentional to to love and honor them. And so Easter Sunday, although we celebrate the resurrection as a church every Sunday, in fact, why the church gathers on a Sunday in the first place is because Jesus rose on that first Easter Sunday. Once a year, we want to, with intention and just in a special way, celebrate the reality of the resurrection. And so, you know, we, we dress a little wilder, maybe, a little brighter. The bass player is encircled with flowers. For re- There's a real rabbit outside. Why are we doing these things? Just because our hearts are overflowing. The same reason we sing. We just need to do a little bit more because Jesus is alive. And, and this Sunday, of all Sundays, this Easter Sunday, we want to celebrate that reality and what it means for us. And so we're going to also do what we do every Sunday, which is look at God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 24. I want to pray for you. I invite you to pray for me. We'll pray with one another for one another. And so let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we get to come to the party that we're invited to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. And we thank you that your love has been made known to us perfectly in the life of your son, the person and the work of Christ Jesus. So we ask, Spirit of God, that in this moment, you would open our eyes to understand Scripture, open our hearts to receive the truth of Scripture. Help me serve my friends today by lifting up the the beauty and the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, God's people said. As I was just reading this story again and again, I was reminded of these past weeks of a historical event that happened in May of 1939, and it happened in New York Harbor. It happened in our country, and if if you kind of know the... temperature of our nation at that time, our, our military was building up in preparation of craziness in the world because World War II was going on. So the Navy was um, just increasing and they had built a sub, they built a new submarine and it, it was named after a shark. It was named the Squalus. And this new submarine had done many, many test dives. But on that May morning, um, on, you know, something like its 29th test dive, something went wrong. And that submarine sank losing its power in a malfunction to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean in the New York Harbor, 250 feet underwater, without electricity, in the dark, oxygen running out. And it just so happened then that the Navy actually uh, was 
just recently had adopted new technology so divers had the equipment or resource to be able to dive to those depths. So soon there were actually rescue divers on the scene going down 250 feet to the depths of the Atlantic Ocean by this sub where men were trapped inside in the dark. And when that lead diver actually began to approach that sunken sub, the Squalus, he heard a banging. Just. And that banging was actually, he was able to decipher it and, and interpret it. It was a message. It was Morse code. If you're under 40, Morse code was like the original text message, right? <laughs> and so this lead diver is a Navy man. He hears this message being tapped out and he discerns, he interprets it. And the message is this. The message is a question out of that depth, out of that darkness. There's a sailor inside who's banging out a question. And that question is, is there any hope? And so that, that lead diver, he puts his feet on that submarine and he stomps back. He, he taps back an answer to the question, yes, there is hope. And that day, 33 sailors were rescued from that submarine. I bring that up because it's a, it's a situation that captures, I think, something that's happening in the life and the heart of these travelers in this story that Ali just read for us. It's two people, and in their own way, they're in the depths. In their own way, they have sunken down. In their own unique way, they're in darkness. And certainly, in their own unique way, their lives are resounding out. They're banging out a question that's deep in their souls. And that question is, is there any hope? And it's a question that, that I have had. It's a question that all of us have had or carry with us today. And this story, the Easter story, gives us an answer to that question. And this is what's significant about particularly the, gospels of, the Gospel of Luke. In all the Gospels, there's resurrection stories. But Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote a book called Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke says that Jesus, after the resurrection, hung out on earth for 40 days, appearing to many, many people in many, many different ways. In the book that we're studying through as a church right now, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus, the risen Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appeared to 500 people at once. There are many, many stories of Jesus, the risen Jesus, appearing, encountering people after his resurrection. But Luke, in an interesting way, he records three resurrection stories. Out of the many he could have included, he includes three. And I think that invites us to ask something as we study a story, which is why these three? There's a story of women encountering an empty tomb and hearing from angels that is referred to in this story. There's a second story Luke records, which is this one, which has the most detail of these two travelers. And then there's a story of Jesus appearing to his disciples. Why those three? And in part, the answer is because they don't just tell us what happened, which is true, the historical reality of the resurrection. But in those stories also, they're teaching us why. They're teaching us something about the, the meaning of the resurrection and the meaning of the resurrection for our lives. And in this story in particular, it's a story of these two travelers, their eyes being opened 
to the reality of the resurrection and what it means for each and every one of us. And so let's, let's, see, what it, let's see what it means for us this morning to have our eyes opened to Jesus in the resurrection. The first thing that we need to see, the resurrection opens our eyes to Jesus' heart. It starts out verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walking with each other, and they were talking as they were walking about all these things that happened. And then while they were talking and discussing together, Luke says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So on this very first Easter Sunday, these two followers of Jesus are leaving Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, through a careful reading of the Old Testament, isn't just a capital city. It means something. it's, It's a city that was the very representation of God's promises. It was a city that was a city of hope. It was where God's promised king was going to come and restore all things and begin his reign. So they're leaving this place that represented hope itself, and they're on a journey to Emmaus. And scholars will tell you that Emmaus is, is like a place that a sandals resort would be. Right? Emmaus is a, a place with hot springs. Emmaus is a city of escapism. They just, they just want to get away. They're leaving a place of hope. They're going to escape, and they're on the serious walk then. It's seven miles, 15,000 steps, three and a half hours away from the, the heartbreak that happened that Friday. These followers of Jesus had seen Jesus crucified and buried, and now they're walking away from a place and a person that they had put hope in, and they're escaping Seven miles, thousands of steps, three hours. And on that long and serious walk, they're having a long and serious talk about all these things that have happened. And this this pair, this duo, we don't know much about them. We know that one is named Cleopas, and we know nothing about the other. Some scholars think it's his wife or perhaps just a friend. But although... There's a lot of anonymity. We don't know details about them. We know a lot about how they're feeling. We know a lot about what they're carrying because, again, three days earlier, Jesus of Nazareth, who they followed, not just as teacher, but as we're going to hear, they say they hope that he was the promised Messiah, means anointed one. There's so much just in that one word, but they hope that Jesus was God's rescuer, God's king. And suddenly and unjustly and violently that day on Friday, he had been crucified. And now they're on this road, this long journey. And they're not just grieving the death of someone they had put their hope in. They're grieving the death of the hope they carried itself. And on top of all this, they're hearing these outrageous claims that Jesus' body is missing, that he's not even dead. And so step by step, heartbeat by heartbeat, word by word, they're resounding with the question, that same question, is there any hope? And as they walk and as they talk, this stranger joins them and the two become three. And they can't see it yet, but it's Jesus who's drawn near. And as we look at the opening verses of this passage, the four words that just jump out at me again and again are there in verse 15. While they were walking and talking, discussing together, what happened? Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. 
Jesus drew near. Like those four words, those four words capture the very heart of Jesus. They capture the very good news of Christianity that like these two, each and every one of us at a time in our life, we've been traveling a road like this, away from hope, away from promises, away from God himself. And in the midst of that, we're carrying doubts and sadness and confusion and, and dead hope. And we're walking away from God. We're going on, on our own way. And, and we're asking that same question, is there any hope? What's, what's the purpose And the answer comes, but the answer comes in the form of a person. Jesus himself draws near. Jesus Christ, God's son, he comes after us. Jesus himself said, hey, you know what I'm about? You know what my my passion is, my heart is? Five chapters earlier than this, he told his, his friends and disciples, he says, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's what he's doing here in this story. He's coming to seek and save the lost. And I just love this because it's so different than everything I would do. This is like a pretty big day for Jesus Christ. He had lived a perfect life. He died a death on our behalf after three days, like he said again and again and again. He rose again. And if I were Jesus and I had just risen from the grave, I think I would commandeer like a chariot and I think I would visit Pontius Pilate. I think I would pay a visit to King Herod. I think I would go to the temple, the city center, and pay a little visit to the chief priests that handed me over and say, what's up? Look who's back. (laughs) But thank God Jesus is Jesus. And what is he doing, though? Like, three hours on the first Easter Sunday, he is drawn near to two people that we don't even know anything about, Cleopas and so-and-so. And no, it's not like back in Jerusalem, people are like, what's Cleopas doing? And, and that person that's always with him, you know? <laughs> we need to know. No one cares where they are. Just imagine yourself like a thousand feet above this scene and there's just two Lonely people walking a lonely road. No one takes notice. No one knows where they are. But this is the beauty. God knows. And he cares. And he knows not just where they are are on that road. He knows where they are in the very burdens of their heart. And Jesus draws near to them because he cares about them. Their hurt, their doubts, their confusion, their pain. And this is the consistent message through all of Scripture, right? Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Emmanuel, God with us. And here on Resurrection Sunday, what do we see? Jesus draws near. He is still God with us. And so many of us this morning are carrying in darkness and and we feel in, in the depths and we have pain and grief. And we're asking the question, our soul is banging out a question, is there hope? And what we see first, the resurrection opens our eyes to the heart of Jesus. And the truth is, even if you can't see him yet, he's drawing near to you. The second thing, the resurrection opens our eyes to Jesus' purpose. See, we see in verse 16, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And this 
passage, like unique. So Jesus and the resurrection accounts, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you really get the, the clear sense that Jesus was clearly Jesus, but there was something different about him post-resurrection. He was Jesus, if you will, 2.0 which that's a whole nother message because it says something about what we get to look forward to as Christians about a new heavens and a new earth and new bodies because Jesus was, as scripture says, the firstborn. And that promise of, of his resurrection is a promise of our resurrection, not just pie in the sky when we die, but a real new creation in Christ Jesus. And yet we see In the midst of other resurrection stories, even though Jesus is different, people are still able to recognize him. But what we see in this story, this passage conveys that these two are being actively prevented from recognizing him, I would say, by God, because Jesus wants to reveal himself to these two in a really intentional way. Because the truth is, they're not just blind to Jesus in this moment. They've been blind to the purpose of Jesus for a long time. And he wants to be really intentional about how he opens their eyes to truly who he is and his purpose. And so Jesus asks them in verse 17, hey, what is this conversation that you all are holding with each other as you walk? And this, listen, I've missed this as I've read the story in the past, but look at how they respond to Jesus' question. The scripture says, and they stood still looking sad. That question stopped them in their tracks. They're crushed. You just get a sense of the the grief and the burden they're carrying. And yet, it's also funny, too. Cleopas answers the question. (laughs) Then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus says, What things? (laughs) And Cleopas says to Jesus, About Jesus of Nazareth, right? And Cleopas asked Jesus, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? And ironically, Jesus is actually the only one who knows anything about what's going on. But Jesus, because he's awesome and dare I say playful, is like, no, fill me in. I would like to know. And so these two tell Jesus. They tell Jesus about Jesus. And they say, Jesus was a prophet. He was mighty before God and all people. He, he said things that nobody else had ever said, and he said them in a way that we've never heard before. He spoke with power and authority. Every word from his mouth was truth. And he did things like nobody else has ever done before. Darkness trembled at his presence. He opened the eyes of the blind, they say, as they're not recognizing Jesus. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. But the religious rulers, they crucified him. Cleopas and his companion, they look at Jesus and they said, we thought he was going to save us, but he died on a cross. And on top of that, now there's rumors and murmurs of his tomb being empty. Angels are evidently involved. We don't know what to make of any of this. And they look at Jesus and they just shrug, right? (laughs) And it's all there in front of them. Their eyes are closed to the purpose of Jesus. They've just laid it all out to Jesus, yet they can't grasp the truth of what's actually happening. And it's, it's captured in that statement, we had hoped, past tense. These two are carrying a dead hope in their hearts. See, they thought they knew who Jesus was, but they don't know who Jesus was. They thought they knew the type, or type of rescuer Jesus was, but he wasn't that rescuer. They thought the crucifixion was the end of the purpose of Jesus. They didn't know the crucifixion was central to the purpose of Jesus. The reality is Jesus is a far better Savior, and his purpose is far richer or deeper than they even dared to dream. 
See, you can, you can grasp this in verse 21 when Kalipa says, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And that word redeem that Kalipas uses there, it means to free from slavery. And see, what, what these two believed is they thought that Jesus was going to free them from slavery, but it was a slavery of their circumstances. They thought Jesus was going to be the one to deliver them from the circumstances they were in economically, politically, and nationally. They thought their biggest problem as a people and personally was the circumstances of Rome being there ruling over them, subjugating the people of Israel. And so their life, their definition of the good life, the flourishing life, their greatest hope, what they would dare to dream, would be that Jesus would come and bring a freedom from Rome. That's what Cleopas wanted, to be freed from Rome. He wanted his circumstances to change. And in my life and in your life, I, I suspect that we are just like that. We think our greatest problem are circumstances in our life, and we want a Savior in Jesus who comes and serves us in the midst of our circumstances and just make our, our, our life better here and now just by making it more comfortable or easy or fulfilling the wishes that we want. And that desire is far too shallow a salvation. To put it this way, like if we were to dream about what a flourishing life looks like, if we can have a marriage that by all accounts is perfect, if we could have children that are just like raise themselves and reflect like just everywhere they go, people sing your praise as a parent. And, and we have a job that every day is just like so fulfilling, right? And we just can't wait to go to work Monday morning. And we have a, a bank account that's full and no debt. And we have a calendar full of times with friends that just love us perfectly. And they're so interesting and cool. And, and our, our bodies are just a specimen of health, and all that can be true. Our circumstances can be just unimaginably good. But if we can't see the purpose of who Jesus is, if we don't know the real meaning of Easter, none of those circumstances mean anything. You can have perfect circumstances and you can have a cold, dead heart. Jesus himself said, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And even in the midst of what we feel like are perfect circumstances, there are going to be moments in life where things settle down and you find yourself alone, maybe in the quiet of night when you're getting ready to go to sleep. And if your eyes are closed to Jesus' purpose, even if everything seems and should be going great in your life and you feel like you have it all, your soul is going to be pounding out the question still, is this it? Is there any hope? See, we need more than a change of circumstances. We need a new heart. We need to be, as Jesus said, born again. We need a resurrection. And the message of Christianity is that our greatest problem, every human for all time, our greatest problem is not our circumstances, but it's our own selfish and disordered desires that not only break our relationship with God, but fracture our, our relationship with one another. But the message of Christianity is it's that problem, the slavery of, to put it in a word, sin, that Jesus came to deal with. That was his purpose. He lived a perfect life. He died a death to pay the price for our sin. And he rose so that we would know that we can rise with him into new life and freedom now and forever. That's seeing the purpose of Jesus. The third thing that this story helps us see is the resurrection opens our eyes to Jesus's glory. 
Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Luke writes, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these two have been telling Jesus about Jesus, and now Jesus is like, I'm going to take the baton, and I'm not, I'm not going to tell you two about Jesus is going to talk about Jesus, right? And he's going to say, hey, now it's time for your eyes to be opened to my glory. The weightiness, the significance, the, the value, the power, the very gravity of who Jesus is. And I love that he doesn't do that by stopping them again in their tracks and just saying, hey, y'all, Take a hard look at me. Any, anything jogging in your memory? Do I look familiar, right? He doesn't reveal his glory by ca calling them to put their eyes on him, although you think that would be the obvious thing, or he doesn't do some miracle or wonder. Jesus wants to reveal his glory. Jesus in the flesh wants to reveal his glory and open the eyes of these two. And what he does is he takes them to Scripture and how scripture, what, testifies these things concerning himself. He shows God's, that God's plan from beginning always has been about the death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection from the grave. And beginning with Moses, Luke writes, meaning beginning with the, not the story of Moses, but the books Moses wrote himself, beginning with Genesis, the very, the very start from page one, Jesus explains that it's always been about him. And he starts off the best Bible study in the history of the world by saying, you foolish ones. <laughs> Which don't read that like Mr. T or like a drill sergeant, like you fools, right? Read it like a loving big brother who's like, you, you knuckleheads. You just laid it all out, but let me connect the dots for you. Let me help you have your eyes open to the glory of Jesus. And so I imagine he went to Adam and Eve. And he said, hey, you know, in the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell and sin entered into the world for the first time, and for the first time, somebody walked a road of, 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 of rebellion and walked away from, from God, but God showed up, God drew near to them, and he, and he said what? That one day a child is going to be born, there's going to be a Savior who's going to come, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, and that serpent's going to bruise his heels. Guys, that was about Jesus. And he would talk about Joseph in Genesis and say, hey, you know that story of a, a, a brother who was betrayed and yet through his betrayal, he was positioned to, to give life and save his brothers? Guess what? That ultimately points to Jesus. And you know the story of Moses, the story that you're most familiar with, how he led people, God's people out of slavery. Moses just is a, he, he exists to, as a signpost to point to Jesus. Jesus is the greater deliverer. And all that, like about sacrifice in the book of Leviticus, every drop of blood shed, it's shed to point to the ultimate forever sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's about Jesus. Even the weird stories like Samson and the hot mess his life was, right? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. The answer to his riddle is Jesus. Out of death comes life. And even when, when he stretched out his hands in power and, and brought about destruction on God's enemies, that's just a glimpse of what Jesus would ultimately do when he stretched out his hands in weakness on the cross and forever brought an end to God's enemies, sin, Satan, and death. 
And he kept on going and he talked about David. Hey, you know how David went out and faced an enemy that nobody else would? That was ultimately all about Jesus. He faced the enemies that we couldn't on our own. Even Esther, Queen Esther, who interceded for her people, that's just a story that points to ultimately what Jesus did. He's the ultimate royal who intercedes for us even now. Every promise in Daniel about a king who would come, the son of man, and he would reign forever, that's about Jesus. Every every promise in the book of Isaiah of someone who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, but who would have offspring and live on. Guess what, guys? That's about Jesus. And on and on and on in every page over those three hours, Jesus poured out the truth about how all things are ultimately pointing to God's fulfilled promise in Jesus. See, Easter opens our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Jesus Christ, think about it this way, is is the sun at the center of the solar system of Scripture. It all revolves around him. He's got the weight. He's got the light. He's got the power and the source of life. And it all is about him. Jesus Christ is the sun at the center of the solar system of truth and faith. Jesus Christ is the sun at the center of the solar system of our very lives. We revolve around him. He is the ultimate in glory and gravity and weight. Everything revolves around him. He's the source of light. He's the source of life. It's through him that we see reality. And when he's out of our view, we're in darkness. The resurrection opens our eyes to the glory of Jesus. And then lastly, fourthly, the resurrection opens our eyes to Jesus's victory. I'll read it for us. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And he was at, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he was talking to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon and he's appeared to Simon. And they, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So just imagine you're with these travelers for a moment and you're beginning to approach Emmaus, you're reaching your destination, and your hearts have been burning, but now you realize after this long, intense walk that your stomach's growling too. And so perhaps Cleopas, he goes to a merchant stall, and he gets a loaf of bread and a jar of wine. And as you head towards where you're staying for the evening, to your horror, you realize that this stranger is not coming with you. He's continuing to go along the way. And, and, it's not really translated in a way that conveys the intensity. They plead and they beg. They say, no, 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 no. You must not go. You have to stay with us. And, and, and commentators are going to tell you that Jesus wasn't just acting as if he was moving on, hoping he got an invitation. <laughs> he, was, he was really moving on. Jesus doesn't always force his gifts and presence on us. And God loves to draw out our desires. And he desires us to desire him. But 
He's ready to stay when we ask. And they do ask, they plead. So the three sit down to dinner, and perhaps Cleopas, he pours the wine, but something surprising happens. This stranger, who should be playing the role of guest, he takes the authority, and he plays the role of host, and he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he serves it. And when these two travelers take the bread, it's in that moment that their eyes are opened. And they see what's been true all along. Jesus has drawn near. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. I always think of that moment and wonder, like, what happened for them to see? And some commentators are going to say, well, maybe, just maybe, they remembered that Jesus has a bit of a history with bread. And maybe, just maybe, when they saw that bread in his hands, something awakened in them, and they remembered the one who fed 5,000 with just a few loaves. Or really profoundly, Some theologians are going to say, think about that moment where he breaks the bread, then he extends the offering in his hands. And as they take that bread from his hands, what do they see? They see the scars that he bore on the cross in love for us. And it strikes their hearts. He's alive. And Jesus offered the evidence of his sacrifice in his, in his resurrection like he's going to do in other resurrection accounts. Ultimately, it was grace. God opened their eyes to the reality that Jesus was alive. And right when they see him, <laughs> he vanishes because what he had come to do had been accomplished. Their eyes had been opened. And I just suspect that in that moment, Cleopas must have looked at his companion and said, what? He's risen! And I suspect that for the first time that Easter Sunday, that companion looked back at Cleopas and said what in response? He is risen indeed. And they stand up, and that slow journey of seven miles becomes, I imagine, a fast journey back to Jerusalem in seven miles, and they're reunited with their family, their fellow followers of Jesus, and they begin to celebrate that first Easter Sunday. They come together, and they, they remind each other. They speak truth, and they, they celebrate the unimaginable good news that is true. They've seen it. They've experienced it, that Jesus is alive, and it's changed everything. And so I'm just aware that there are many of us in this room, and we are asking that question in some way, shape, or form. Is there any hope? And the resurrection roars back the answer to us. Easter screams from the rooftops, yes, there is hope. Easter is an invitation for our hearts to burn like these travelers. As our eyes are open to Jesus' heart, that he draws near to us. Jesus' purpose, that he's a greater savior than we would ever imagine. That his glory is true. Everything is about him. Our very life is about him. His victory is real, that he defeated death. So even the scariest of things, death itself, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's not the end of anything. It's just the beginning of forever in Christ Jesus. 
And so if you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity, you're not so sure what you believe, this isn't a fable. This isn't a metaphor that's 2,000 years ago that's irrelevant to you. It's history, but it's your reality right now. You might not see it. You might not know. You might think your circumstances are the biggest issue in your life, but the biggest issue in your life is your separation from God. But the good news is Jesus is drawn near to you. He's pursuing you right now. He's after you. He's calling you to open your eyes to the beauty of the resurrection and what that means. And there's no better day to have your eyes open to that truth than Easter Sunday. See him for who he is. Don't give your life away or live for anything that, that is too low for you to live for. He is the one person who's worth living for. He is the center. Nothing else is worthy to worship. Nothing else is worthy of living for. And this is the truth, that he loves you deeply in ways that you can't imagine. So receive that love. Open your eyes to the beauty of who he is and worship him as risen Lord and King today. And if you're in Christ Jesus, we get to come to the table like those two travelers 2,000 years ago. We get to come and take bread and celebrate that our eyes are open to the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done and celebrate the sacrificial love that he has made known to us on the cross and that he is vindicated and validated by rising from the dead. And so when we take bread and drink wine, we are joining with a chorus of a wave of believers who for hours and hours all around the globe have come around the table today to break bread and celebrate the fact that that Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection have changed everything for us and our eyes are open to that fact. So let's stand and pray.